Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Helen Scales and Chris Smith. And as always, we kick things off by looking at what's been making science headlines around the world this week. Chris. Helen, how often do you clean your teeth and is it less than twice a day? Oh, it's absolutely always twice a day, if not more, I'm sure. Well, good for you. Your dentist will be delighted, but not only that, uh, so will your heart, because there's new research out this week. It's been published in the British Medical Journal showing that if you clean your teeth twice a day, then you have a much lower risk of having a heart attack than someone who doesn't. Now, for a long time, people have claimed that there is this link between poor oral hygiene and heart attacks and other vascular problems like strokes, but... Evidence as to why it happens is lacking, and most of those claims have been made on the basis of small studies which had just shown that, confirmed by a dentist, someone has got this periodontal disease. In other words, there's problems going on with the mouth and teeth, and then the association was made. There's no easy way to just say, well, has someone got poor dental hygiene? How does that relate to, ri- to the risk of having a heart attack? Well, what Richard Watt and his colleagues at University College London have published recently, is a study where they looked at 12,000 people who were men and women, most of them over 50, in Scotland. They started with 12,000, but they had to actually sling 3,000 people out of the study because they didn't have any teeth, and having teeth was an inclusion criteria for the study. Um, But with the residuum of their original starting cohort, they followed these people up for eight years on average, and they weighed up whether or not they had a heart attack or some other vascular arterial event during that time. And they also made measurements of an inflammatory chemical in the bloodstream and various lifestyle factors. And when they married up, who had had a heart attack with evidence on how often the people claimed to be cleaning their teeth, they found that people who had poor dental hygiene, in other words, they gave a history of cleaning their teeth fewer than two times per day, had a risk of a heart attack that was 70% higher than the people who did clean their teeth twice a day. So this shows there's a really strong link. In other words, the risk ratio is about 1.7 times greater for the people who clean their teeth only once or less times a day compared with people who had better oral hygiene. So you might ask, well, why does this happen? And the people who had the heart attacks and had the poor dental hygiene also had very much higher levels in their blood of a substance called CRP, C-reactive peptide, which is a sign of inflammation. So what researchers think is going on is that having inflammation in the teeth and gums then trips over into the bloodstream. And because arterial disease is an inflammatory process, perhaps having inflammation going on elsewhere in the body also increases the rate at which inflammation occurs in the arteries and therefore damage happens to the arteries, therefore triggering heart attacks. How can we be sure that there aren't other factors that are tangled up in all of this, that people who don't clean their teeth also have a terrible diet and don't look after themselves or exercise? Um, Can we be sure that those things aren't also sort of playing somewhere in there as well? Well, I have looked at that, and that's a very good point. Um, And obviously there are other factors which are playing a role because people who have poor dental hygiene may also, as you say, have a deleterious lifestyle. They may be in a lower social class, for example. Both of those things are independently associated with having a high heart attack risk. But the point that the researchers and Richard Watt and his colleagues are making is that what we need is something that someone can ask a patient to see whether or not they're at risk. So in other words, if you're a nurse or a doctor and you're just doing a screening, someone walks into your surgery and you just want to find out what their risk of a heart attack is, by just asking them simply, how often do you clean your teeth? Could give you very valuable information as to the likelihood that person might need more or less intervention from a heart point of view.
And it seems like a simple thing, really, just to spend a few minutes every day cleaning your teeth. Now I sound like a dentist, don't I? Anyway, I'm going to roll things back to a time long before toothbrushes were invented, but we probably still needed them, with new archaeological evidence that suggests that human ancestors gave up their vegetarian diet and began feasting on land and aquatic mammals around two million years ago. And it might have boosted their brain size in the process. Butchered remains of crocodiles, turtles and fish were found by David Braun from the University of Cape Town in South Africa and his team who've been excavating at Kubi Fora Formation in northern Kenya. Now the findings were published in the journal PNAS and they provide some of the earliest evidence for meat-eating among our human ancestors. Now one question you might ask is, well, how do we know that it was people eating these animals and not other animals? And in fact what they did was they scrutinised the bones, the fossil bones that they found and found cut marks that are really strong evidence that it was people with stone tools who were eating these animals and there's also evidence that they were sucking out the bone marrow as well which is rather nice. Wonderful to think of the things that can be fossilised and the, these activities that went on a long long time ago. We don't actually know exactly who it was who was eating these animals because there are no hominin bones in the same formation. Um, it could be that it was Homo habilis, one of our very ancient ancestors, or perhaps even some late Australopithecines. So they're the possible candidates. But the key thing might be that these aquatic species are especially rich in one form of omega-3 fatty acids that we know now is really critical for human brain growth. And it's a theory that having a diet very rich in these omega-3 um, fatty acids early on might have played a role in the fact that our brains very rapidly developed, they got bigger, we were much more clever, we were able to solve problems and become the humans that we are today, a really essential human characteristic. But we can't be sure, really, if these early butchers were just occasionally snacking on a crocodile or whether it was actually part of their staple diet or was it just an occasional meaty treat? We don't actually know quite yet. Did they eat more fish and meat because they had a bigger brain and therefore more to sustain? Or was it this switch that then meant they could sustain a bigger brain? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? We absolutely don't know at the moment. It's, this is absolutely just a theory that it might have come along at the same time. We've really got nothing more than just knowing the effect that omega-3 has on our brains today and sort of extrapolating that to perhaps it had a role in the past. is really It's going to be very difficult to find out, but it's a great question and uh, it could have been either way, I think. So food for thought then. Absolutely. Well, also this week, scientists have shown that uh, animals can teach each other tricks and traits and pass on traditions. Historically, we've thought of this as a uniquely human thing to do, where you have passing down generations, various bits of wisdom. And apart from a few isolated examples, for instance, things in your domain, Helen, the aquatic domain where dolphins in Australia, for example, have been shown to put marine sponges on their noses to protect them when they're going fishing, and this seems to be a trait passed from mother to daughter, and there are a few things that primates pass amongst themselves, for the most part we've come round to the idea that animals probably don't teach each other things very much. But Corsin Muller and Michael Kant, who are researchers at Exeter University, have got a paper in Current Biology this week, and they would disagree with you wholeheartedly. They've been to Uganda, where they've been looking at mongoose. Mongooses? Mongeese? What, what, what's the plural? Uh, I go for mongoose, I think. <laughs> uh, whatever. They've been looking at these small carnivores, which actually are quite convenient study subjects, because they live in social groups. And another interesting trait about them is that a young mongoose, a pup, is associated early on with what's known as an escort. This is an older individual who usually is male, but pairs up with the pup to basically show it the ropes for a few months so that it learns the tricks of the trade. And one of the things that mongoose, mongooses do is they 
like to eat things that come in hard shells. Nuts is one thing, but also shelled creatures. And the way they get at the contents of these nuts or the shelled creatures, snails and things, is they either pick them up and smash them against something hard on the ground many times until they break open, or they hold them in their paws and chew their way in. And which of those two things they do tends to be a preferred trait for one animal. So in other words, one animal will be a thrower, another animal will be a chewer. And they tend to use that technique for all the different things they do. What the researchers wanted to know is, well, does that trait get passed from an older animal into the younger animal? So what they did was make the mongoose equivalent of a kinder surprise egg. You know, those things with a hard plastic case and inside a little present. So they took these kinder surprise eggs and they put inside a, a tasty treat with some rice and some fish and they first of all offered these to the older animals the escorting animals to see which of these techniques they would use to break into them either the throwing or the biting and once they'd labeled the adults as one or the other of those two things they then started offering the treats to the adults in front of the pups so the pups could see the adults solving this problem then what they did, after they'd done that for about ten trials, so that the pups got to watch an adult open one of these things ten times, they then started giving them to the pups and asking, and how will the pup open the thing? And not surprisingly, I mean, just as you would expect, they opened them identically to the way they'd seen their escorting animal open them. If, they, if the escorting animal was a thrower, the pup was a thrower. Now you'd say, well, how do we know they're not just copying the behaviour of the adult then? And actually this is where it gets clever, because they also, as a control, gave some animals some of those little plastic eggs that were already open. So they didn't have to open them, they just had to eat the food. So the young one just got to learn that in those plastic eggs that they didn't have to open was a tasty treat. When the pups were offered closed containers, then when previously they'd watched the adult just eating the open container, they used one or the other of the two techniques equally prevalently. In other words, there was no bias based on regardless of what the adult they were hanging around with used to do in other things. So what this shows is that this individual trait is passed on from an older individual to a younger individual by observation. The animals are learning off each other and it's contextual. It does, it, it, it's individual for each isolated circumstance. So animals definitely can learn off each other and pass on tricks and traits and traditions. Fantastic. I saw some pictures of them breaking these uh, bits of food open and it was rather fantastic watching them fling them to the ground over and over <laughs> to get into their tasty treat. We hear a lot about the state of the world, the natural world and especially the oceans um, and the things that are going wrong with it. And occasionally we get news about ways that we can actually do something to help. And that's news that I have this week that transplanting fragments of coral broken off during storms could in fact be a simple, cheap and effective way of helping to restore small areas of reef that have been damaged. Now, the equivalent on land would be if you had twigs broken off a tree during a storm and that you could stick these back in the ground and then let them grow and sprout into new trees. Now, a team of researchers led by Graham Forrester from the University of Rhode Island in the US have published a study in the journal Restoration Ecology and they've been assessing how well coral transplantation actually works to help healthy reefs grow back. White Bay in the British Virgin Islands in the Caribbean was the enviable study site for this paper. And the threatened elkhorn coral, Acropora palmata, was the focus species. And as its name suggests, it grows into a branching form like deer antlers. Um, and these can get very easily damaged by storms. Now, the research team, with help of local students and residents, dived down and picked up these fragments that were on the seabed after a storm. They then took them to another site where elkhorn corals used to be, but they'd been wiped out by a deadly disease a couple of decades ago. And they fixed them in place using cement, underwater cement, resin and uh, plastic cable ties. They simply sort of tied these bits of coral back onto the seabed. 
four years later, and 40% of those transplanted corals were still alive. And that's despite there was another big storm and some coral bleaching events as well, which um, is when the sea temperatures rise and they lose those vital symbiotic algae. The really good news is, and the crucial point of this, is that some of these transplanted corals had grown big enough to become sexually mature. So they were reproducing themselves and probably seeding other reefs nearby and really kind of helping to boost that local ecology and the health of those ecosystems. I did see a report a few years ago now where researchers were looking to do reef remediation, similar to what you're saying, but they also passed electricity through the water. So they had a big metal grid underwater, put the corals on the metal grid and then passed a a low current through this. And the coral grew about 40-50% faster in that environment than when it was just done with the coral being tethered with no electricity. And their argument was this is presumably helping to fix various things like calcium from the seawater, make it available to the coral so it can grow quicker. Absolutely, yes. But um, the key thing about this particular method is it's very straightforward. The the electricity thing is very nice, but can you can imagine trying to put a battery under the ocean a little bit more tricky? It's very cheap, but it is labour intensive and there's really no option of doing this on a large scale. You can't imagine replanting the barrier reef, for example. It does offer a a sort of local option for people to help boost their own reefs in a particular area and, and help to make them more resilient to those bigger global problems that we know that reefs face today, including climate change and pollution and overfishing and all those other dreadful things that are going on. And, of course, the benefit that uh, reefs can bring to an economy because they attract all kinds of other industries, including tourism and fishing. Thank you very much, Helen. Uh, If you'd like to find out a bit more about any of the news stories that we've covered so far this week, they're all on our website, details and references. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.